namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa puttang dhammang sangkang namasami I've been invited to give <coughs> a few Dhamma reflections to close out our evening together here. I thought I'd try to um, honor the request to talk a little bit about equanimity tonight, um, give a few kind of thoughts or reflections around that. But maybe first off, um, Talk a little bit about dukkha. Um, I kind of feel these days I should probably start every Dhamma talk I talk with. I talk of. <laughs> I feel like I should start every Dhamma talk with dukkha because you, you really just can't uh, focus on it enough in a sense. Um, and for me, um, for quite a few years now, it's kind of the central organizing uh, principle that I use to think about, contemplate, and make sense of uh, the Buddhist teachings, and especially like what is he trying to get at? Um, we're in the distinct disadvantage of living 2,600 years after the Buddha, and there's an enormous body of commentaries and practices and long-standing ways of interpreting what the Buddha uh, meant and what is important and what isn't important and um, in early Buddhism it's fairly uncontroversial that the Four Noble Truths and in particular the the striving to understand dukkha in a profoundly transformative way and uh, end that experience um, through a wise understanding of what the Buddha meant by dukkha, what it is that afflicts our lives is, is the heart of the practice. Like I mentioned earlier when we written into the monk's ordination ceremony is Please give me the going forth from the home life into the homeless life. You beseech your teacher, please ordain me for the sake of Nibbana. Um, it, it's right there, sort of in the Pali words that you chant when you ordain. And Nibbana, besides being cool, is the cessation of dukkha the complete and utter cessation of dukkha. So I'm going to talk about equanimity, but really I'm talking about the ending of dukkha. <laughs> and so, you know, when I read Dhamma, think about Dhamma, talk about Dhamma, this is something I uh, encourage myself and, and others to try to come back to again and again, especially for those of you who've been practicing for many years and you got your podcasts and your books and you guys are kind of like swimming in this stuff 
it's really easy sometimes to lose sight of the forest through the trees and to get stuck on the trees and to lose that kind of bigger picture and to me that bigger picture really is is dukkha which we often translate as unsatisfactoriness or suffering and so a, a question that's always alive in my mind is how does this relate to dukkha and the ending of dukkha how does this relate to understanding what is what the Buddha means by dukkha and a transformative understanding of it not just a superficial understanding of it so um So that, I mean, that's kind of my orientation. And, you know, one way I, I think about dukkha in, in a very loose, com contemplative way these days is just kind of thinking about flow and being hung up. And the ultimate goal of my practice is sometimes something I think of is being consummate in being able to sort of flow with the experience of consciousness in, in the human realm which I've been born into. Um, and dukkha is getting hung up. So I, I think of myself as an aspiring log trying to float down the Columbia River. <laughs> and how can I make my way to the ocean without getting hung up? Uh, on all the various obstacles along the way. How can I not end up like one of those kind of rotting pieces of driftwood on the beach, kind of snagged in some old, decrepit, broken down set of piers that used to be a, uh, a port or a dock. So I, I want to make it to the ocean. I want to flow. And there's so many things in life that we get uh, snagged and hung up on and so I, I kind of liken this to the ultimate sort of goal of the practice and I love bringing the emotion the wise emotion of equanimity to mind because it seems so uh, integral to that sort of process the way I, I think of it is it's that state of flow. It's that freedom from being uh, biased, being hung up. I often think about it in relationship to the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes. These are the teachings on uh, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. It's a set of four uh, qualities of heart which the Buddha names the Brahma Vihara broad, Brahma is a god or uh, we sometimes translate it as a divine being and a Vihara is an abode goodwill compassion empathic or sympathetic joy and equanimity these are the places that divine beings dwell. And uh, most of you know of these as uh, meditation objects. 
But it's interesting in the suttas, the, the Buddha doesn't really talk very much about how to meditate on these things. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a scholar, this is just a reflection, but from my reflective readings of the suttas, more often than not, the Buddha just says, do this, be this. <laughs> You should be a person of goodwill. You should be a person of compassion. You should be a person full of uh, sympathetic, empathic joy. And you should be a person who relates to your own and others' experience with equanimity. Um, And so, you know, sometimes I like to contemplate when it shows up in the teachings like that. In some sense, it's, it's kind of like a, an intention that we should sort of set, like to be, to be and to speak and to act um, and to move through the world with that sort of orientation. Um, and, the, and there are many places where the Buddha is not just sort of saying, uh, be that. He's saying relate to each other in that way as well. It comes up in many, many lists of how to be a good monk <laughs> or how to be a good person. Um, one doesn't just meditate on these things. They, Their speech and their actions are driven by those tendencies towards goodwill, compassion, empathic joy, and equanimity. Um, and it's a little bit of a loose kind of translation. My, my favorite translation for metta, the first of these, is not loving-kindness, which is the most popular one, but it's goodwill. Um, but I think it is fair in some ways to, to liken these for Brahma Viharas are divine emotions to various states of love, um, various states of very pure love. I would, you know, not sort of clingy or romantic love, but a very kind of high and purified love. Um, and in particular, when I think about the last of these equanimity, uh, the way that word is held, I guess, maybe in modern times or the way many people tend to think about it is a bit sort of flat. And so in particular, I, I like to think of this whole sort of set as different dimensions of love sometimes kind of counters that tendency to feel or to worry that uh, equanimity is somehow a kind of flat, maybe semi apt uh, apathetic kind of state of mind, and uh, you know, my my feeling from my own practice is true equanimity. To true equanimity is really far from that. It is it is warm and full. Uh, and these days, even when I sort of bring it to mind, it it warms my heart. <laughs> to think of being equanimous. Like, just thinking about spending a little time not being hung up. <laughs> uh, and kind of a dwelling in this 
wisest of emotions, as the Buddha referred to it, uh, as being a state of fullness. Uh, Ajahn Sona um, has this kind of phrase that he image that he comes back to all the time in various kind of contexts in his teachings. He talks about striving to become a person with a cool head and a warm heart. <laughs> and in some ways, I think the way I relate to this quality of equanimity and try to encourage myself to cultivate it um, encapsulates that sort of image. I've spent a lot of uh, winters up meditating at Birkin and one of my favorite possessions when I go up there is Ajinsona gives me a feather duvet and when it's 20 below 30 below Celsius nobody's your better friend <laughs> and then a big fluffy feather duvet <laughs> and at the end of the day after you've been kind of meditating all day long and everything uh, you have your evening sit, and it's very dark in the winter there. They only have about eight hours of sunlight. And you crunch back through the snow to your little lonely cootie in the forest in the blackness of the Canadian wilderness. <laughs> and you, you go into your cootie, and you get ready for bed. And then when, <laughs> this happened to me so many nights, too. I crawl into bed and, and then pull my duvet up over my head and just smile. <laughs> and you've just been outside walking in this very crisp coolness. And, and often enough, I even walk back without a hat. And you're laying there, and the second you pull that thing all over you, it just radiates this warmth back into your body, this soft warmth. And uh, the cootie they often give me there has a little skylight, and I have it cracked open so the cool air is kind of like coming down through this skylight, and my head is cool, but the rest of my body, and most importantly my heart, <laughs> is just fluffy and warm. <laughs> uh, and I think we need these kind of inspiring... Uh, analogies and images sometimes they can be very effective ways to orient ourselves and snap us out of um, the moments where we kind of lose it um, and and to me this sort of idea of a cool head and warm heart the reason why I liken it to equanimity is because you know equanimity is said to be the wisest of emotions um, to maintain that sort of state of flow that I'm talking about and not to get hung up there really needs to be great understanding great acceptance great patience great tolerance uh, things that are uh, most difficult to de develop in our lives and generally take years, if not a lifetime, to cultivate to sort of high levels. Um, 
you know, it's easy to be kind of cool and chill <laughs> and not all worked up when conditions are kind of going our way. We have things as we like and we're around the things that we like, the people we like. Um, it's very challenging when we don't have those things. And the reality of a human life is that we don't really have the ability to kind of control our environment to the degree necessary to take refuge in that other strategy for finding a sense of profound well-being and happiness. Uh, and I also think about it in relationship to sort of human emotions like, you know, so much of the dukkha and so much of the suffering in our lives is um, the difficulties we have with other people. Um, I guess the weather does provide a few challenges every now and then. <laughs> and there are some physical challenges of life, but you know, when I think about the, the real challenge of a human life and the, the bulk of the dukkha that I'll suffer in this lifetime, most of it is uh, failures in my ability to relate to myself skillfully <laughs> and other people sort of skillfully. Um, and one of the greatest kind of lubricants in, in human relationships is understanding. Um, so often the friction and the heaviness of any relationship difficulty we encounter uh, has its seeds in some sort of under, misunderstanding or lack of understanding and, and clear seeing, um, even in a mundane way. Not, not, not to speak of the more profound levels of wisdom and understanding that are often kind of lacking. Um, and kind of echoing back to this loose reflection on the four Brahma Viharas as four dimensions of, of love. Um, if you really want to listen to a monk talk about love, um, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> But for me, the most profound form of uh, human love is one that, that is empowered by a deep kind of understanding of another person. Like for me, the most powerful love I've ever experienced is that love that comes from another person that I feel really sees me and really understands me. Uh, uh, Lacking that, I mean, it, it just seems superficial. Uh, and, I, you know, I think of that in sort of relationship to the, the Brahma-vihara of equanimity. Uh, for it to sort of uh, mature and to be something beyond a kind of superficial, like, oh, I shouldn't be kind of hung up about the stuff in my life, uh, the election, the environment, um, the relationship problems, uh, the very real problems of, of survival and trying to live your life and deal with the responsibilities and the situation you have. Um, 
a huge, deep, wise kind of understanding of yourself and others and the world. Um, not just to like, it's okay, I'm not going to be hung up, but like a profound sense of it's okay. A profound sense of everything is fine. A profound sense of uh, kind of understanding why things are the way they are. It's not just an acceptance of the way things are. There's, It's empowered by a kind of profound understanding of causality and, and conditions and kamma and how that all comes together in this moment for the world to be like this, the way it is. And it's the kind of empathy that's empowered by that. It's the kind of flow and open-hearted love that flows from that kind of seeing um, that I think of when I think of equanimity as a Brahma-vihara. So there's uh, a few other interesting kind of contemplations. And in the break, I was chatting with Ajahn Kurudam a little bit, and um, he was talking about two types of equanimity. Uh, was it limited and unlimited? Diversity and unity. Diversity and unity, which I'd, I'd never heard before. Um, but I often think of two types of of equanimity, and and one I one I'll call mundane, which is so mundane it's the one I was just talking about. <laughs> so it's not really that mundane. Um, but I, I like to call it or think of it as mundane because um, you know it's something that in the flow of our everyday life we can. Uh, strive for and orient to in almost any sort of situation that we find ourselves. You know, whether it's driving and traffic or work or relationship problems or emotional stuff you're struggling with. It's like, you know, you can recollect with mindfulness a determination or an aspiration to infuse that quality into your into your life and it can have a very kind of positive effect especially over time as we meditate on it develop the path you can do that in stronger and stronger sort of ways um, but then there also is the the quality of equanimity that I would call super mundane because it's more connected with um the culmination of samadhi or samatha, uh, and also it's at the the top of the seven factors of awakening, which is when we were talking earlier and having these questions. Uh, we mentioned the seven factors of awakening, and there's there's kind of even an interesting relationship between looking at the the way the jhanas are talked about and defined in the suttas and the seven factors of awakening. 
Um, so the seven factors of awakening have a sort of hierarchical structure, and at the base of them is sati, mindfulness. Um, and I like about I like how they talk about it in the commentaries the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. <laughs> Increasingly with mindfulness all over the place and secular forms of mindfulness, I like to talk about the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. This is not just bare awareness or being aware. This is the, in, this is the kind of mindfulness that fulfills the seven factors of awakening, nibbana. This is the kind of mindfulness that will get you enlightened, um, not just aware. Uh, and that's at the base, and then comes Dhamma Chanda, which is uh, investigation of Dhamma, or I like to translate it as Dhammic curiosity. <laughs> Harkening back to, I want to understand Dukkha. I want to understand how I do Dukkha. What is Dukkha? And I want to understand it. I'm curious. I, like, I, I've been working on this for 20 years, and I think I understand Dukkha, but you know what? I don't understand it like the Buddha did, <laughs> because I haven't experienced the same transformation that his understanding of dukkha produced. And I tell myself that from time to time to kind of fire up that curiosity, like, yeah, you think you understand it? <laughs> How come you're not enlightened? So, <laughs> like, oh yeah. So I'm curious now, like, well, what is it that I don't yet really see uh, in the noble truth of dukkha? Um, and therefore I'm not released from, from its effects. Um, so notice the energy that's there in this kind of, and that curiosity, and then the next factor is virya or energy. And it's the kind of energy you need when you're striving to accomplish or do something. It's not merely just uh, sitting or practicing or being awake. Uh, the enlightenment factor of energy. It's the kind of energy that you will need to cultivate and need to use and practice and have when you're trying to accomplish something great and profound. Um, and so like think of a, a Olympic athlete or something like this. <laughs> it's like if they're really gonna win the gold medal, they have to have, they have to cultivate a certain kind of energy in their day-to-day -day training and their practice and in their performance. Uh, and in the midst of their performance has to be this kind of bright sort of energy. So, and that's the third factor. Fourth factor, piti, joy, rapture, uh, born of meditation. What is joy? It's not feeling happy. <laughs> you know, joy is a profound physical experience, right? When we're, when we're sort of like in the midst of joy, it's a profound physical, emotional, mental experience that sweeps over the whole body. Um, it's oftentimes translated as rapture, uh, tranquility, the enlightenment factor of tranquility. Samadhi, which is the perfect unification of the mind. Classically, the four jhanas. So we have these. 
the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, this energetic Dhamma curiosity, the energy of the practitioner, the joy, rapture, tranquility, unification of the mind, supporting equanimity. <laughs> uh, and the reason why I bring this up for reflection as the top of this sort of list and spend some time kind of going through those is just to emphasize this sense of equanimity as something that the Buddha sort of placed on a very kind of high pedestal in a sense. It's the there is a form of super mundane sort of equanimity that is the byproduct of very balanced, strong, profound practice and cultivation. Um, and that's that's what I kind of reflect as reflect on as kind of super mundane sort of equanimity. Um, and it also comes in the descriptions of the jhanas. So, you know, we have the four jhanas in the early suttas, and these are the various stages of unification of the mind, or sometimes I like to think of them as perfect states of meditation. And the principal way that these are identified and talked about in the suttas is with with five sort of factors coming to maturity. Um, and in the first stage of jhana or unification of the mind, we have five factors of vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, ekagata. And vitaka, vichara are oftentimes translated sort of as applied and sustained thought. Um, but, you know, sort of in this this kind of reflection, sort of thinking, well, what's the relationship between these these five and the bojangas? It's like there's a pretty deep overlap between the the first three aspects of the bojangas, the establishment of mindfulness, that kind of dhamma curiosity, and the energy component. Um, have a, a deep kind of overlapping or relationship to what's going on sort of in these first two sort of factors of jhana, the sort of applied and sustained sort of thought. And in, in, in this form, the hindrances of the mind, the psychic irritants have been sort of weakened. So there's very a profound sort of energy and mindfulness that is engaged with its object of meditation that we're talking about when we talk about these as jhana factors. And the next are piti pasadi, or piti sukha actually in the jhana factors. So it's the same word, piti, joy, rapture, is the third of the jhana factors. And the fourth is sukha, which is happiness. Kind of like tranquility. <laughs> So in some of the teachings and the commentaries, they say piti is kind of the, these piti sukha are joy and happiness, rapture and happiness, um, are very closely sort of related 
and the pity is more physical and the sukha or the happiness is more mental. A very close match to sort of what we find in the bojangas with the sort of pity and then the tranquility or the joy and the tranquility. And ekagata is one-pointedness or unification of mind, the oneness of mind. And that maps very nicely with the six of the bojangas. Um, those five factors, when they've come to maturity, are said to characterize the, the first of the four jhanas. And if you march up through the definitions of the other jhanas, some of the lower ones kind of fall away because they're obstructing something that is even more deeply unified, deeply sublime. And the ultimate byproduct of the fourth jhana or the perfection of the jhanas is described as equanimity. Um, so there's this kind of neat kind of overlapping between uh, the kind of perfection that is available sort of in meditation and the very factors of enlightenment that the Buddha sort of talks about. Um, these are challenging and difficult states to sort of know and attain to. Super mundane. Uh, there, there are a few places in the suttas where they're kind of sort of talked about in a common way and the Buddha sort of says, no, no, no. <laughs> These are special things. Um, so, you know, if you haven't experienced these things, you shouldn't be discouraged. Um, but I like to reflect on these things because there is there is this higher form of equanimity and it too should be sort of uh, reflected on and aspired to and aspired to sort of uh, in, in a very meditation practice and I would say uh, experienced in this lifetime. Um, it is the high and the sublime form of equanimity. Uh, completely cool, completely full, with with a powerful, powerful sense of life being completely unproblematic. So I'm going to offer that for your reflection tonight. A couple of thoughts on equanimity.